Well, today as we come together and consider Hebrews 2, I want to consider a, a few points of the implications of our last messages. There have been so many things going on in our world, and we've discussed many of them, and the, the recent national and world events, the expressions of human depravity that have been so evident in many of those. But amidst that, I trust that you still are holding on to the hope of Christ. Of course, the hope of your own salvation, nothing would shake us from that. And, and not hope as the world hopes, but hope, a biblical hope that there may yet be a restoration. There may yet be an opportunity for our world even to return to Christ. Hope that the world would turn to Jesus. That they would bow their knee, that they would confess Jesus as Lord. A hope for our country that they would turn to the only true hope in Christ as Savior. That we would see a national revival. Is this your hope? Do you pray for our country to turn from their wickedness? To turn from their hatred of their fellow man? I certainly do. It'd be an amazing transformation. Quite the reversal of our current trajectory. But it could happen. Well, that's just the kind of reversal that we see in our text today as we come to Hebrews chapter 2. And, and I, because of that, I've titled our message, An Incredible Reversal. An Incredible Reversal. Let's look at our text in Hebrews 2, 9 to 13 and understand exactly what's involved in that reversal. Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 9, says, But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. An incredible reversal. Our text today reverse, uh, reveals to us a reversal that results in exaltation. There, there are four elements for you to make note of this morning. Four facets that reveal this mandatory condition of exaltation from our text. Hebrews has been evidencing for us the supremacy of Christ. This first section has shown us Christ's supremacy over the angels. The first chapter revealed the supremacy of Christ as the messenger. And now in the second chapter we begin to see the supremacy of Christ and his message. The, the message of Jesus Christ is to be exalted above everything as he is exalted above everything. It's a message to which we must pay much closer attention such that we do not drift away. 
A message that if ignored will bring mandatory punishment because not obeying or hearing has a penalty. It's a message of a glorious plan, one that is conceived before creation itself, one in which man's fall would be restored, that which we desperately needed. Man's sin righteously redeemed by the Son of Man. And in this restoration, God exalted, as we discussed when we looked at Psalm 8 and the beautiful quote which was revealed for us in verses 6 through 8. It's a message of subjugation. Jesus himself subjecting himself under the Father. The subjection part of the glorious plan of restoration is challenging because of what results from it. The humiliation that our Lord went through. And yet Christ was subject in all things as we saw in 1 Corinthians 15 and verses 20 to 28. Yet it is a plan that is still coming to fruition. For although all things are subject to him, as yet we do not see all things subject to him. We know that there yet still are those forces that are antagonistic to Christ, seeking to raise their ugly head. Our world system and its wickedness as one. The demonic realm and even death itself. Yet in the subjection of these which has begun, there is a control over these because the process has been instituted. Jesus has subjected himself as verse 9 reveals to us. And we've repeatedly addressed this in our discussions on verses 5 through 8. And last week revealed that Jesus' life on earth at his first advent was the ultimate expression of submission made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and with honor because he suffered death. And he tasted death for everyone. Each of us understand a measure of this, but never will we know the fullness of death's sting, for the Lord has taken that on our behalf. And we are the benefactors in a great way from that. And even in this was the massive expression of the grace of God. This was the humbling of our Christ. Made for a little while lower than the angels. Having left his divine abode and come to earth to dwell with man through that period where he would for that time be brought down. But now the text reveals an incredible reversal. Look at verse 10 in our First point, a proper exaltation. A proper exaltation. Verse 10 shows us as it begins that it was fitting. The, the four shows the causative connection to the previous section. As we considered verse 9, that we do not see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And the connection to that is that it was fitting for this to occur. His subjugation to death is that which was fitting. This causative connection shows that there was a proper exaltation going on, a fitting exaltation. And that word proper here carries for us, or fitting, carries for us the idea and the implication of moral judgment. 
There was an element of God's righteousness that came forward in this. We see the same expression of this Greek word proper in Ephesians 5.3. And it says in Ephesians 5 and verse 3, But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. There is a contrast to those things which are not, not right, which are not pure, which are immoral, and that which is fitting, and that which is right. There was something, beloved, in the, in the character of God that made this humiliation of Christ and now his exaltation a fitting response because his love deemed it proper to bring salvation's perfect plan through his son. There was no other way. There was no plan B. We understand the excruciating nature of that plan when we consider our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane and how he prayed three times, Father, if it be possible, remove this cup from my hands. And yet there was no other way. This was the plan that had to be orchestrated. And this reveals the amazing compassion of God for man. So much so, beloved, that he was willing to slay his own son for you and for me. What an incredible exaltation. And one, per God's own word, that was fitting, that was proper and right. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. It was fitting describes the type of the action that was ongoing and that is one which was proper but the subject there is him. It was fitting for him. The, the verb that we know that governs the subject is all the way to the end of verse 10 and that verb is to perfect. It was fitting for him to perfect. And, and the question we must ask is, who is the him? Who is the subject of this verse? We remember the pronoun discussion we talked about last week from 1 Corinthians 15 and verses 24 to 28. And I, I challenged you as good Bereans to go home and to study through those with Psalm 110 as your foundation and try to pull out the components of the he's and the hymns that related to God the Father and God the Son. And I had some wonderful interactions with some of you about that this week. But to answer the question of who the pronoun him references, we need to look at the, the next two phases of this text. It says that it was for whom are all things. All things exist for this one, whoever he is, God the Father or the Son. He is the ultimate cause. The next clause says, it is through whom are all things. So he also is the creator of all things. And as we look at this, we still don't have a clear picture because both the Father and the Son participate in creation. Both are those for whom all things are caused or brought into effect. And so we expect this as, as such, understanding that God is three persons in one. But the next clause is in bringing many sons to glory. Now this too could be either the Father or the Son. Our answer really lies in our final clause. To perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. 
And the way we get to that is by understanding who is the author of their salvation. The action of this subject him in perfecting this one who is the author. Well, the author clearly is Jesus. He is the one who has suffered. He is indeed the author of salvation. As Hebrews 12.2 specifically delineates using this very word. I love the, the King James version as it relates here to this last clause in verse 10. It calls Christ the captain of their salvation. Others use founder. The, the word author can, can tend to fall a little bit short because it pictures someone who is separate from the events. He writes about the fact, but he's not intimately involved with them. But Jesus is participating personally as he is leading us through. He has tasted death for everyone. He is leading us through that gateway. As we understand that we will all in like manner taste death, we can know that Christ has walked that path before us. He has tread that way and that we will, as he went, follow him. He tasted death for everyone. He lived the life we lived. He was tempted in all ways and yet without sin. He doesn't just emphasize or he doesn't just sympathize with us, but he empathizes with us. Therein, that word captain better carries it. He is not remote in looking and writing about what we go through, but he is there with us. So we have our answer. The him is God the Father. It's fitting for him, God the Father, to perfect Jesus. And, and to perfect here does not mean to change. It does not mean there was a change of state, that Jesus finally became something he wasn't before. Not at all. It means to complete. It means to bring to fruition or to bring to an end, to accomplish that which had been in the works from the beginning of time. Jesus brought salvation through suffering. It's a major theme throughout Hebrews and, and throughout this whole concept of the superiority of Jesus over the angels and throughout the book in his supremacy over all things as his suffering is an expression of that superiority. The focus on suffering and death in verses 9 and 10 is not to be missed. Those two words used four times in these two verses. The reason that it is so focused is because of the audience. The writer writes to the Jewish believers, and remember, as we've discussed many times, they did not see a Messiah who would suffer. They did not understand time. They recognized two components of time, everything leading up to Messiah and everything beyond Messiah. So this concept of a suffering Messiah was not in their mind. All they saw was the triumphant Messiah, the one who would relieve them from the pressures of Rome. So the author writes to say, no, look at what your word shows about this. You see, they had missed the power of Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant. They had missed the power of Daniel 9, 24 to 26, where it told them that Messiah must be cut off for a period. Well, this was a proper exaltation. It was fitting for God to bring completion to the work of salvation through Jesus Christ. And indeed, is this not a glorious reason for us to exalt in our God? That Jesus, our captain, brought us to salvation. 
that he has walked us through. You know, when we think about that, uh, many of you have been uh, on, on boat rides out into the Gulf. Sometimes the weather gets a little exciting around here, as I'm learning. And when you're on one of those boat rides, I understand that that can be a very challenging time. Some of you doubtlessly have experienced that. Well, let me ask you, what kind of captain do you want when you're out there on the Gulf and the waves are kicking up? Do you want one that understands that he better not be taking on those big waves head on, that he kind of needs to move across them laterally? Do you want someone who is recognizing and experiencing and having going through this? Of course you do. Well, so also with Christ. And so also we must ask, is Jesus your captain? Are you trusting in his sufficiency? Are you trusting in all that he has shown us and in all that he has done in walking us through and showing us through his sufferings the pattern in which we will follow? Beloved, we must recognize that component of what he has done. We must recognize that Christ came for one purpose because there was no other way. That man could not achieve salvation of his own. That there was no good in us. That in and of ourselves we are wretched sinners. But that Christ has come. That he has suffered an ignominious and horrific death on the cross so that we might have life. So that we might rejoice in our salvation if we believe in him. If we confess him as Savior. If we live as he is Lord and Master of our lives. Well, Jesus brought those of us who know him through to salvation and it was fitting for God to do so. This is indeed a proper exaltation. Our next point is in verse 11. It is a parallel exaltation. A parallel exaltation. Look at verse 11 with me. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. We notice there that the word father is italicized in our text, showing that it's not in the original Hebrew or in the original Greek text. But the context clearly indicates a separate entity from the one who sanctifies and, of course, from those who are sanctified. Thus, the father. Because of this. He's not ashamed to call them brethren. Better yet, beloved, he is not ashamed to call us brethren. This is the parallel exaltation, that of Christ in his sanctification and that of those who are his in their sanctification. The parallel exaltation explains the previous proper exaltation. This is the introduction for what we see in verse 11. It shows us how many sons are connected to the author of their salvation. We are made one in Christ through sanctification. The, the necessitated connection between the son and the author is holiness. It is sanctification. That of being set apart. We must not live as, that, as this world. If we are to be part of our Savior, we must live as He lived. We must seek to live a sinless life. We must walk the way that He walked. Be separate from the world. We are made one with Christ in that sanctification. One commentator notes that the holiness of God, it does not budge or give in. 
There is only one way, beloved. We too have to have that holiness. Those who are associated with him must possess it. Those who would argue for a, a universal salvation that all will come to heaven in one way or another, that all paths lead to the top of the mountain, are absolutely ludicrous alongside of this verse. It confirms for us that only those who achieve and are being sanctified are those who will be with Christ. It, it's not just those who are sanctified as, as a completed action, as those who have already done or, or something we can just write off because God's got those all figured out and we can walk away from it. No, this is a present tense verb. It's an ongoing action of sanctification. And for those of us who came to the Lord later in life, even more so, we praise God for that. But this is why, beloved, every time I, I preach, I, I call those who are with us to salvation. I call them to know Christ. I call them to accept the gospel because it is still an ongoing act. God is still saving people. And this is why we still evangelize. God is still bringing the knowledge of the power of Christ and the gospel to the darkened hearts and minds of people. And we ought to say amen, for it is such a glorious thing to recognize. And beloved, now is that hour of salvation. As Paul told us in Acts 17 and verse 30, as he's in Athens speaking on Mars Hill, and he says there in Acts 17:30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The wrath of God will yet be unleashed. Now is the hour of salvation. Now is the time to recognize that Christ must be our Lord, that we will not be with him if we have not engaged, if we have not embraced the sanctification that he calls us to. The world today, there's still hope, but they must act. This is not a late-for-class situation. This is not sliding into the desk at the last minute out of the parking lot before the teacher calls rolled and get not counted truant. Now, this is something that has to happen now. This is a recognition that we do not understand the last hour. And every moment that you wait, if you do not know Christ, you are heaping wrath upon yourself. The text says, for this reason... He is not ashamed. Ashamed's an interesting word here, isn't it? A fitting word. Because of the fall, Jesus could not call us brethren. Without Christ, men are wallowing in their sin. They dwell in the evil wickedness of our world. First John tells us, you're either of your father God or you are of your father the devil. There is no mid-ground. There's no fence riding. You're either God's in Christ or you are of Satan. If you're a Christian, then God has possession of you. And if not, 
then you are the possession of the enemy. By definition, he would have to be ashamed of us. Psalm 5.4 says that no evil dwells with God. What does that mean in Psalm 5.4 that no evil dwells with God? Does that mean that God has no connectivity with evil? That there is nothing about it? That he is out of control with that? That it just runs amok? That it came out of nowhere? Not at all. What it means is that it is not part of his abode, his dwelling, where he lives. He cannot be in the sustained presence of that. For he is holy and righteous. And none can be around that that are in that state of evil and wickedness. And any that are, he must by definition be ashamed of. But he is not ashamed. This is an incredible reversal. You know, I, I used to, when I was in, uh, in high school at, as a freshman, I used to do a little wrestling. Uh, I tried the band, actually, my first year. Andrew's going to love this. I played the sousaphone. That's that huge thing you climb into. And we went to our first band con conference, and, and the band leader said, you know, it'd be best if you just didn't play. It's just kind of... So I said, all right, well, we'll try wrestling next. I was, a, you know, a strong, strapping, six-foot, 200-pound weakling. And the state championship wrestler was the coach's good friend, and they decided I'd be a great practice target. And he had this wonderful reversal move. He'd get me on top of him, you know, like I really had some chance, this strapping guy and that wrestler move. And then he'd do something and kind of throw his leg under mine and twist me into a pretzel and have me on my back in about two seconds. So I understood that concept of, of reversal really well. Well, it is this kind of incredible reversal that God is showing to us. Christ as one who goes through the most humiliating of deaths. To be scorned by wicked men, left to the hands of the godless Jews and Romans, and then brought to massive exaltation. And because of that, he is not ashamed of those who are his. This is an incredible reversal because we too are those who are in the wickedness of our flesh, separated from him and having no desire. But now he is not ashamed to call us brethren. This, beloved, mandates the exaltation of Christ, does it not? Because the proper exaltation of Jesus by God results in the parallel exaltation of us with him through sanctification. And then there is the third element of exaltation. In our third point, a praiseworthy exaltation in verse 12. A praiseworthy exaltation. Verse 12 reads, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Verse 12 quotes Psalm 22 for us and returns us to that Old Testament usage here in the New Testament and we're reminded as the psalm comes forward that there is a parallelism as with all of the psalms. The second stanza amplifying the first. The praiseworthy nature is so evident in the singing of praises. Is it not incredible for us to sing God's praises is it not a delight for us to hear God's words sung? Did we not have a beautiful opportunity this morning to rejoice in our God in listening to Dustin and Molly? This is the praiseworthy nature of singing his praises. 
And those praises being sung in the congregation, that, that Greek word meaning church or the body of the redeemed. In the Old Testament, this meant the assembly, but the context would be the same. It was the children of Israel who were faithful to God, as Psalm 22 revealed. An abundant and evident praiseworthy exaltation. The, The first stanza of verse 12 pronounces the same thing of a praiseworthy exaltation. It says, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. Here we have Christ proclaiming God's name. Pronouncing the gospel of good news. The proclamation here is the gospel because it is the declaration of the name of God. And we know this is the gospel message as Acts 4.12 confirms for us. And by the way, Acts 4.12 is a wonderful place for you to go and to memorize a scripture to use in your interaction with other people other non-believers, it says there in Acts 4 and 12, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name given under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. The subject is the same here as in verse 11. It is, it is Jesus, the Son of Man, and He is proclaiming the name of God to the brethren. Truly a glorious and praiseworthy exaltation. But let's consider for a moment the source of this quote in Psalm 22. Will you turn with me in your Bibles to the 22nd Psalm? Page 562 and 63 there in your Bibles. It's a famous psalm. We've spoken about it before as it describes the passion of Jesus Christ perfectly portraying his death over a thousand years prior to Jesus' first coming to earth. The first 21 verses of Psalm 22 paint this graphic and painful picture of the Lord's suffering. Then in verse 22, there is this tremendous shift that goes on. The entire tenor of the psalm changes. And this has confused many commentators. They've said, well, well, who is now speaking? As we've discussed before, there is some, some ongoing debate about whether this psalm reflects Christ or reflects David. And, and we've decided clearly that this is referencing Messiah. But now there's this change of tone in verse 22 and from where our quote comes. So what's being talked about? Let's look at a couple of these verses in kind of a flyby fashion. Verse 23 says that there is praise and that there is glorification and that there is standing in awe. And then verse 24 tells us why. Because he has not abhorred the afflicted. This reminds us of our context of Hebrews 2. It is Jesus not being ashamed. He has not hidden his face. He's heard those who have cried to him. Acts 2.21 says, And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10.31, making the same proclamation. John 6.37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing any to perish, but to come to repentance. God is hearing and He is responding. He is answering to those who would come to Him, those who would praise and glorify Him, those who Christ has called and died for. 
Verse 25 of Psalm 22 goes on and says, God is praised in the eternal assembly. And then verse 26, the, the poor are cared for. Those who seek him praise the Lord. In verse 27, all the ends of the earth will turn and be saved. In verse 29, the, the prosperous will worship. And then the last stanza there in Psalm 22 and verse 29, where it says, all those who go down to the dust will bow before him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive. We're reminded of the end of verse 9 of Hebrews 2.5 which, which talks about the Lord tasting death for everyone. But the cross reference here is, as the good Bereans we are is Psalm 89.48. Let me read that for you. What man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Can any man save himself, the psalmist is saying. And then in the additional cross-reference in Psalm 49.9, it says that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. Who, who comes to mind? Who is the one who did not undergo decay except our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah? The answer as to how the soul will be saved, even those who cannot keep their soul alive, is Christ he is the one who will direct us. He is our hope. He is the one who we look to as we consider the hope for this world system. The one who posterity will serve in verse 30 of Psalm 22. This is the praiseworthy exaltation because Christ is bringing those about. And then the final clause of verse 31 is a powerhouse. It says in the last clause, he has performed it. This is a beautiful phrase that we kind of lose a bit in our English because it is identical to the cross-reference from John 19.30. John 19.30 is very familiar to us. It is the Lord's final word on the cross where he says, it is finished. And you might say, how are these the same? Well, they are the same because they are the identical single word exhortation. In John 19.30, that last word is to tell us die. And in that is, it is finished. The Hebrew in Psalm 22.31 is asa. It is finished. The identical phrase. This is the triumphant cry at the end of the psalm, which is why it changes tones. Because it is a praiseworthy exaltation that although Christ suffered the most horrific humiliation, that all would come to a knowledge of the truth in him. A beautiful picture of the exaltation of God. Redemption is complete. Jesus has paid the price and the victory is won. Beloved, the victory is ours. What a glorious and praiseworthy exaltation. And so also is our last point in verse 13 of Hebrews 2. Would you turn back with me to Hebrews 2 for that final point? A, a proper exaltation, a parallel exaltation, a praiseworthy exaltation. And then in Hebrews 2.13, a prophetic exaltation. A prophetic exaltation. Verse 13 quotes Isaiah chapter 8. In verses 17 and 18. Now we've, we've talked about the book of Isaiah quite a lot. We're actually in Ezekiel now in our Wednesday night studies. 
And we've talked about how there are two halves, basically, in the book of Isaiah. Well, this particular quote in Isaiah 8 is in a very unique section of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 7 to 11 are called the scroll of Emmanuel because every chapter has a specific reference to Emmanuel in it, to Messiah. Well, before we go over our verses, let me just share the context with you of these familiar words in Isaiah 8. You'll know many of these. You'll have heard a good portion of these. Isaiah 8, beginning in verse 13, says, It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Verse 14 then he shall become a sanctuary, but to both the house of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a, tra and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them, then they will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples." And then our quote in verse 17, And I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. This is the exact section. And then verse 18, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. To regard as holy in that first part is frequently referenced in the New and Old Testament. The stone of stumbling, the rock of offense. We're familiar with that from the prophecy of Christ at his birth in Luke 2.34. We're familiar with it from Romans 9 and 33. Even 1 Peter 2.8. The Lord himself applying those portions of scripture, the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense in Luke 20 as those who will stumble and be crushed. That is, he is bringing condemnation uh, against the Pharisees. And, and then our quote in the first stanza of Hebrews 2.13. And it says there in that text, in Hebrews 2.13, in that first portion, and I will put my trust in him. I will put my trust in him. The idea is something that is eagerly looked for and hoped for. Something which has been awaited. You know, it's been said that by one commentator that this is an essential component of every Christian life. The ability to wait. To be a Christian is to wait with a steadfast endurance as an expression of one's faith. Beloved, that's what we must have. We don't see our elements of faith all laid out. We don't understand all that the world has for us. There are turns and twists that we never would have expected each moment of our lives. But our faith is that that steadfastly holds to Christ. That recognizes that He is orchestrating every turn and every twist and that He is with us. And although we may not see where that curve came in the road or where it will end, we know that God is there with us through it. He is the one whom we trust in. And I will put my trust in him. Like verses 11 and 12 before, the speaker is Jesus. And he is trusting in God. The context of this verse in Isaiah 8:17 is trusting in God as the Father would subdue all his enemies. 
And his trust is an expression of prophetic exaltation, that which was brought forward 750 years before this text. So also in the second half of verse 13, where it says, And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. This context of Isaiah 8.18 is the future relationship that Jesus will have with the redeemed as granted by the Father, the great congregation in heaven. Another glorious exaltation, and this time a prophetic one. Each of these three Old Testament quotes is used to portray the humanness of Jesus, of the Messiah. The victory and the resurrection through God in Psalm 22 is a praiseworthy exaltation. And then his trust in the Father to subdue all his enemies. And his future delight in the great congregation of which we will be a part. An incredible prophetic exaltation. When we consider the scope of these four elements of exaltation, it should certainly fill us with hope. Hope that our world could turn to Christ. Hope that our country could turn. Perhaps more so, hope that our city would turn to Christ. Or maybe even, maybe even Central Mobile. Let's take our area here from Cottage Hill to Airport and from Mont Lamar to University. Can we hope that this area would turn to Christ? Do you have this hope? Can I tell you what will move your hope from a, a worldly, I hope so, to a biblical assurance that will occur? Would that be an exciting thing to see this part of our community turn to Christ? Can you imagine the light to all of Mobile? Think about the impact that would have on our city. Well, here's how it happens. Here's how to confirm a biblical hope of our area turning to Christ. It's when we at Christ Fellowship Baptist Church fully turn to Christ. Beloved, it starts right here. Do you remember Jesus' admonition in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 as, he, as his ascension is happening? He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Do you have the power? If you are here as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are fully indwelt with his spirit. You have all the power that you could ever need. Well, then it can happen right here in Central Mobile. When it happens right here in the hearts of each of you. And there are three things that need to happen. You might want to write these down and think about them. Three things that will bring this to fruition. The first is embrace the exaltation of Christ. The incredible reversal that we've just seen, the, the exaltation that is proper for God. Why was it proper? We don't understand why God was so gracious to us. The parallel exaltation that we are brought alongside of Christ, the praiseworthy exaltation of our singing and rejoicing in Him as Psalm 22 brought deliverance after death, and the incredible prophetic exaltation of Christ. We must embrace the exaltation of Christ. Second, we have to embrace the edification of Christ's body. Once you embrace Christ's exaltation, once personally you understand in your heart and you are just blowing out at the seams over all God has done, 
then you must embrace Christ's exaltation and it must affect your commitment of love, of contribution to the body at Christ Fellowship. God has gifted you with a spiritual gift to bring together and to serve and to build up this body of Christ. Is that not what we read in Ephesians 4 this morning? So we must embrace edification of Christ's body. Third, we must embrace evangelism of Christ's children. Jesus told Paul that he had many children in Corinth. Do you believe that Christ has many children in Mobile? Do you believe that he has many children here in central Mobile where we live? We have some of those children in our church this morning. We'll be outreaching for Bible Club this coming Saturday. Will you be with us? Will we, will we be exercising that opportunity to evangelize? Embrace evangelism of Christ's children. Beloved, this text is an incredible reversal. Jesus goes from suffering and submission to the glorious exaltation in resurrection. And it's a time for an incredible reversal in us to recognize the blessings that we have in one another and to move beyond them. To let the, the power of this text move in our hearts so that the exaltation that is here is blowing out of our hearts as it is blowing up in this text. To understand that although we love one another, that there is a deeper level we need to go with one another. We need to get in one another's kitchens and to be invited in and to enjoy that fellowship and not just to talk about fishing or the game or whatever's on our hearts but to talk about the Lord and we need to embrace evangelism and carrying this message out God gave us the power of the gospel not so that it would sit in us water that is poured into a cistern with no outflow stagnates and grows moss and becomes nasty that ought not be us we need an outflow for the gospel because it's continually being poured in. We must allow it to move out and to bring life and fruit in the living water of Christ. It is then we will know with confidence, assurance, and biblical hope of this success. But the success rides on your shoulders. Jesus has put you in this body to function and there are no vestigial parts at Christ Fellowship. There are no pew warmers in the job description here. I guess we all know what's next. It's time to get to work. I pray you'll embrace this call. I pray you'll do your part in the exaltation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.